Our sermon text this morning is in Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. We're going to be reading chapter 9, verses 1, or verse 11, going all the way to uh, chapter 11, verse 6. And it's hard to believe, but this is our 11th sermon in the whole series. So we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes for a while. Looking back, it seems kind of hard to believe the time has flown so quickly. We're nearing the end of our series. There's this sermon today, and then there's two more following it, and that'll wrap everything up. So since we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes for at least several weeks, hopefully if you've been able to follow along with us, you know the, you have a sense of the culture that the sage, the writer of Ecclesiastes, that main voice, you have a sense of the culture that he is speaking into. It was a time of abundance and it was also a time of temptation. The sage is constantly talking about the dangers of money, of material wealth, the allure of power. And he is constantly also lamenting the great oppression that he sees in the society around them. So apparently, as we listen to him speak into that culture, there was growing material prosperity that was happening at that time. And that growing material prosperity was accompanied with growing corruption in society. It's interesting, isn't it, how those two things often go together throughout history, material prosperity and corruption. In a culture or in a world where there's a lot to be gained, if you're alive in an era where there's a lot to be gained for yourself, there's usually a lot more to be gained if you're willing to bend the rules a little bit. In fact, in settings like this, Because there's not a lot of material incentive to do the right thing, giving in to temptation actually seems almost like the wise thing to do. If you bend the rules, then you can get a little bit more for yourself. And if you've ever done that before, if in any realm of life you've bent the rules just a little bit, you know how shockingly easy it is to justify our actions Again, we might know in our minds we shouldn't do these things, but it is so easy to justify our actions. How many times have you said or heard before, what's the harm? A little bending of the rules never hurt anyone. Does that sound familiar? Well, if we're honest and we look back through history, time after time, a little bending of the rules actually always hurts people. Foolish behavior eventually destroys somebody. It's going to destroy you, or it's going to destroy the people around you. It turns out that wisdom has some very clear advantages over foolishness, even if those advantages are not always financial. As the sage will tell us in this long passage today, wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. I've entitled the sermon Portraits of Wisdom this morning because, like we'll see, I think that this text feels kind of like we're walking through an exhibition with the sage. There are 10 to 11 short scenes in this text, and it's not always clear how these scenes hang together, how the sage moves from one to the other, kind of what's the logic behind him going from this point to this point. He offers us a lot of advice, but if we listen carefully, if we pay attention carefully to what he's trying to say, three portraits of wisdom emerge, showing us the benefits of wisdom. 
Now, again, this is a longer passage, as you can probably tell just from the numbers that I've said. And so I'd ask you to please keep your Bibles open or keep your Bible apps at the ready if you're following along on those. Because in order for us to listen to these three portraits well, I'm going to be moving around a lot in the passage to point to these various themes and bring them out. These three portraits of wisdom. Wise words. That's the first portrait of wisdom. Wise words. Wise choices and wise motivations. Through these portraits of wisdom, the sage is urging us to choose wisdom in a world that seems to reward foolishness. By choosing wisdom, like we'll hear in the text, we may lose out on material gain. That's true. But we will receive eternal reward. So choose wisdom. It's worth it in the end. It's the message of our text this morning. So with that in mind, brothers and sisters, please join me in reading God's word together, again, starting in chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, There is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. 
A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, when your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days." Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Brothers and sisters, thus far in the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we look to you for comfort, for tenderness, and for wisdom and strength this morning. Please speak to us through this hard word, this challenging word to understand what message you're conveying to us. But help us also to understand the harder point, which is that our hearts are drawn towards foolishness but you are encouraging us to a better path. So give us years this morning to hear that deep truth. Give us hearts that incline to your way, for it is better. Your way is the one that brings us to life. So guide us through the Spirit this morning to hear true things from your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, in order to set the stage for this text, for you to kind of get the feel for what's going on in this passage, I want you to imagine the sage of Ecclesiastes uh, going out to Starbucks with a freshly graduated college student. So this, this person is just right out of college with some sort of prestigious degree, and they're sitting down with the sage for coffee. Now, this young college student is eager They have their degree. They have their credentials. They are just so eager to go out into the world and make something of themselves, to make a few dollars and make a name for himself or herself. And the point of this visit, the reason why the sage is sitting down with this eager person is to encourage this person to choose wisdom, to choose wisely, even though in the world that they're about to enter, 
folly is incredibly tempting. So that's the point of this visit. Put yourselves in the shoes of this, uh, in this impulsive, eager college student who is just interested in going out and getting some money for the first time in life. And here's what the sage says. He says, choose wisdom. Choose wisdom even though the world is uncertain. We hear in 9.12, man does not know his time. Or 11.5, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Or 11.6, you do not know which will prosper, this or that. The sage says, look, I know the world's uncertain. And when you see uncertainty happening, you are going to be tempted to ask, what's the point of wisdom? What's the point of wisdom if it doesn't guarantee me some sort of good outcome in life? You will be tempted to forsake wisdom, but keep wisdom. Choose wisdom. Wisdom is better. Also, choose wisdom, even though folly is often rewarded. In this life, in this world, folly, the foolish, often promote folly and foolishness. We can hear this in 10.6. It's a good example. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. And so here, it's the foolish that are promoted. It's the foolish that are rewarded. Here in this verse, it's rich. It's not talking about material wealth. Rich in the passages is contrasted with folly. So it's not, not, not poverty. So it's not talking about the material rich not being put into a position of power. That's not what the sage is lamenting. He's talking about the riches of wisdom. Again, richness in wisdom contrasted with folly. It's not the rich who are promoted. It's not the ones who deserve to have some sort of good reward given to them who have it. It's something we see too often. In our world, those who are foolish are promoted to positions of power. They are the ones who are rewarded instead of the wise people who really deserve it. And again, when you see this happen, you're going to be tempted to forsake wisdom, to give up on this project of wisdom. But the sage says, keep choosing wisdom. Choose wisdom, even though the world is uncertain. Choose wisdom, even though folly tends to be rewarded. Choose wisdom in the end, because folly creates lots of problems. Again, you might look out and see wisdom not flourishing and folly flourishing, but if you take the sage's advice, folly actually causes lots of problems. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner, one sinner destroys much good. Like one match can set a whole acreage on fire and burn it all down. A little foolishness can destroy everything that you're working on and that you're working for. So choose wisdom. Wisdom is better. Now to make his case, the sage paints these three portraits of wisdom to show exactly how wisdom is better than folly. What is the advantage of wisdom? Well, here's the first portrait. It's wise words. Wise words are better than foolish words because wise words build up. Wise words build up. Let's look together at chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. It spends a lot of time talking about foolish words in this passage. The words of the fool 
are clearly destructive. His words destroy himself. Verse 12, the lips of a fool consume him. Also, the words of the fool destroy others. Verse 13, the end of his talk, meaning the thing that it accomplishes is evil madness. The fool's words are completely destructive. But let's contrast that with wise words. If foolish words tear down, they destroy things, then wise words build up. Wise words have the capacity to build you up. They build up your credibility. They build up your integrity in the eyes of other people. Verse 11, the wise man's words win him favor. And so wise words, instead of destroying yourself, they build you up. But they don't just build you up, they also build up others. A lot of these proverbs deal with life in a very highly charged political environment. And so wise words in a political environment allow the advisor to find favor with the ruler. And that's really good news, not just because the advisor's career is advanced, but because the advisor's wisdom is taken to heart. It allows the ruler to be built up. When the advisor's wisdom is heard and heeded, the ruler is more able to rule the people well. His ruling is built up. And then when the ruler rules well, the people are then also built up. The wise words of the advisor build up everyone. So what is a wise word? If wise words are so effective at building up, what is a wise word? Well, let's look at this portrait of wise words a little closer. If a fool multiplies words, like we hear in 1014, then wise words are few. That means that wise words must be well-considered words. Wise words require us to think, to listen, and to pray before we speak. Francis Schaeffer, if you, may have heard, you may have heard of Francis Schaeffer. He was a renowned apologist and a renowned evangelist. Had the opportunity to influence so many people, very influential in the world. He was sometimes asked what he would say to someone if he only had an hour to meet with them. How would you answer that question? If you only had an hour to speak with someone about something very important, what would you say? It would be so tempting to try and pack that limited amount of time with as many words as possible. But here was Schaefer's answer. He said he would ask questions for 55 minutes of that hour. 55 minutes out of the hour, he would listen. He would listen so that he could understand the person's heart, their mind, their situation, where they're coming from. And then he would speak for the last five minutes of that hour, offering the best, most well-considered, prayerful, and precise encouragement that he could. And again, he influenced hundreds of people through his ministry. When your words are wise, you don't need that many of them to make your point. Wise words are few. Also, unlike the fool in 1015 who's lost, who doesn't know his way to the city, wisdom knows the way. And so wise words direct other people's actions through timely, practical, good advice. That's another part of what a wise word is. It's good advice. Wise words require you to know what you're talking about or to be wise enough to admit that you don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes the wisest phrase that you could say is, I don't know. 
but let me find out, and then I'll get back to you. That is a wise thing to say so that you can direct someone on the right path. Wise words, according to chapter 917, are better than the shouting of a king. And so that means wise words are gentle and wise words are effective. Wise words persuade people. And ultimately, wise words bring life. Foolish words, according to 1020, with that kind of humorous example of don't curse people even in private because someone's going to find out about it. Foolish words only destroy. Wise words build up. Now, of course, wise words do not always guarantee a good outcome. Think again about the world that we live in. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had wise counselors. They gave him wise, gentle, life-giving advice, but Rehoboam ignored them to the detriment of the entire kingdom of Israel. Now, maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe you've had some time in life where you sent a boss an email that was wisely worded, very well considered, and you tried to craft it very carefully, but your opinion was then rejected. It's tempting to give up on wise words when you see that happening in life. But remember, wise words will not always reward us in this life, but they still have a redemptive advantage over folly. Wise words build up. They don't destroy, and that pleases God, and it's good for you, and it is good for those around you. Wise words build up. So wise words are better than foolish words, but wise words are in short supply, aren't they? Wise words are in short supply in our culture. Wise words are in short supply in our own mouths. Why? Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. To have wise words, you have to have a wise heart. Too often we find our mouths spewing foolish nonsense because deep down we have a heart problem, don't we? We talk too much because we're prideful. Or because we're afraid of being known. And so if there's any silence in the conversation, if we can't control the conversation, then someone might ask us some sort of question that we are afraid to answer. We talk about others, using our words to tear them down because we are insecure about our own selves or because we're angry with them. Or we keep silence at the wrong times because we're afraid to use words of correction and be rejected. We have a heart problem underneath our word problem. For us to have and use wise words, then we need Jesus. We need Jesus. When we look carefully at this portrait of wise words, it's really a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the model of wise words. Read the Gospels. He was the master of wise speech. He knew when to talk and when to stay silent. His words were gentle enough to comfort the most broken sinner, but they were also strong enough to shatter the strongest kingdoms. The kings of the world knew that he was a threat even in his silence. His words are timely. They're precise. They give good advice. And most importantly, Jesus' words are life-giving. Forgive them. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus' words build up. Jesus models wise speech. 
And Jesus, thankfully, gives us new hearts. That's the promise of the Gospel. We have new hearts in Christ, and so we can begin to train our tongues to speak wisdom because our hearts have been healed by grace. This portrait of wise words leads us to Jesus. The second portrait of wisdom is wise choices. Wise choices are better than foolish choices because wise choices bring flourishing. Wise choices bring flourishing. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, is all about making wise choices for the sake of a flourishing household. How can you have your household flourish? According to these verses, invest, save, and work hard. Cast your bread on the water. Give a portion to seven or eight. Sow, reap at the right time. These wise choices are for the sake of the household. They enable the household to flourish because there's generally a financial benefit to hard work. And this financial benefit enables a household to flourish. Wise choices bring flourishing in the household. Also in society, chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, about the poor man and the city. It shows us that wise choices in situations of conflict can bring peace can bring stability, enabling a community to flourish. Or we might look at chapter 10, verse 1. Foolish choices ruin things, but again, wise choices bring flourishing. So how do we make wise choices? If it's such a good thing for us to do, how do we do it? Well, it's partly through experience. Experience helps you make wise choices. If you've done something once, you can probably do it again and improve upon it as you go along through life. And if you've seen a lot of life, then you can learn to adapt to all kinds of different situations. Experience helps you choose wisely. It helps. Also, in addition to experience, you need to have good listening and good observation. How do you think the wise man was able to deliver a city that was vastly outmatched? Well, at some point, someone had to listen to him in order for him to deliver the city. Or why does the sage recommend planting and reaping at the right time, working hard? Well, he's observed how the world works. You sometimes have a window to do things, and if that window goes, you're not going to be able to do what you need to do. You need to listen. You need to pay attention to the world if you're going to make a wise choice. Now, especially if you're young. If you're young and you don't have a lot of experience, then you really need to listen to people who have experience so that you can learn from their observations about the world. So that's part of what goes into making a wise choice. But it's not just experience and listening that enable us to make wise choices. Wise choices require godliness, 10.16 shows what happens when ungodly rulers live selfishly. Feasting in the morning rather than ruling well. It's a curse to the land. Their ungodliness curses the other people around them. But the godly rulers, in contrast to those foolish rulers, the godly rulers bring flourishing to the land by their wise choices. Happy are you, O land, when your rulers are godly people. Godliness helps you make wise choices because God's ways are good ways. And finally, wise choices involve faith. We have to have faith in order to make wise choices. This text hammers home exactly how much we do not know. You plant, but you don't know how much is going to grow. 
You invest. You don't know what's going to happen down the road. You, uh, you don't know what's going to happen to you in life. Time and again in this text, you don't know. But you can't also get frozen in the face of uncertainty. You have to act. You can't just wait around for everything to line up well. In fact, as, as 11.4 tells us, if you regard the clouds, meaning that if you spend all of your time trying to read the signs for the absolute perfect time for action, you won't reap, is what the sage says. Faith is part of godliness, and it enables us to act in the face of uncertainty. Faith is trusting in God to make your choices count. And so when you need to make a decision, spend some time in prayer first. And then after you pray for the Lord's wisdom and after you pray for him to increase your faith, then use your experience. Get some wise advice and then apply godly principles in order to act in faith. Like wise words, wise choices don't always guarantee a positive outcome in life. Unfortunately, bad things sometimes happen to us even when we're trying really hard to make the right choice. I think that's what chapter 10 verses 8 through 11 is all about. Wisdom helps us to make wise choices. 10.10 says that wisdom tells the worker to sharpen the axe A sharp axe certainly helps if you're cutting wood, but then wisdom doesn't always prevent accidents from happening. 10.9, he who splits logs is endangered by them. There's always a risk with our choices, even when we act in wisdom. We don't know the future. We don't know the outcome. We don't know how other people are going to respond to our choices. And it's hard for us to accept disappointment in failure especially, especially if we have prayed about it. If we've prayed about our decisions, sometimes we feel that God owes us a good outcome. If we can sort of hold up to the Lord, but I was trying really hard to do this the right way. It is hard to accept from his sovereign hand anything less than perfect success. It is emotionally hard for us to make wise choices. But it's also spiritually hard for us to make wise choices. We're sinful, and we're selfish. Many times, like we hear in this passage, wise choices involve depriving ourselves of present pleasures in order to gain future flourishing. That's what wisdom is all about, but the fool only wants pleasure now. Just think of those foolish kings and their feasting. Wise people in this text consistently, uh, they delay their pleasure choosing to work hard now and enjoy later. Also, wise choices often involve us putting other people first and putting personal pleasure last, and we don't like that. Putting other people first, putting our personal pleasure last is very challenging for us, especially in our sin. And so if, our, if wise choices are better, they're better than foolish choices, but wise choices are also incredibly hard for us to make emotionally and spiritually Clearly, we need help. Yet again, we need Jesus. 
Jesus was the master of wise choices. All of his choices brought flourishing, and he had to face some very challenging decisions. But time after time, he engaged when he needed to engage, and he left when he needed to leave. He slept when he needed to sleep. He worked hard when he needed to. Now, we might say, yeah, well, he was God, and I'm not. He had some insight that we don't have. And that's true. He was God. But listen to what the Gospels say. The Gospels insist that even though Jesus was God, he was also human. And in his humanity, there were things that our Lord did not know. So what enabled him to choose wisely in these scenarios when he did not know the future in his humanity? It was the Holy Spirit. Jesus had an incredibly intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit worked to enable our Lord to make the wise choice every time. Matthew 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark chapter 1, verse 12, even goes further. He says he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's one example of how Jesus was led, driven by the Holy Spirit as that impacted his choices. And so, yes, Jesus was God. Yes, he was sinless. So he was able to delay his gratification. He was able to put others first, but he was also governed by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit enabled him to choose wisely. Jesus is our model for wise choices. But also, like wise words, Jesus equips us to make wise choices too. Because he cleanses us from our sin. He cleanses us from our selfishness so that we can work hard now. So that we can choose eternal rewards over physical, material rewards now. Also, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us that still, small voice who assists us in our daily journeys of making decision after decision. So look closely at this portrait of wise choices. It's Jesus that you see the master of wisdom, and the one who equips us to make wise choices as well. And this brings us to our third and final portrait of wisdom, wise motivation. Wise motivation is better than foolish motivation because wise motivation blesses others. Wise motivation blesses others. It's all throughout this text Wisdom is fundamentally directed toward the benefit of others. Why did the wise man act? To save his city. Why do the wise kings delay their feasting? So they can serve the people well. Why should we speak with wise words? To build others up. Why should we make wise choices? To bring others flourishing. Wise motivations are about seeking to bless others. As one scholar put it about this text, the righteous in this passage are distinguished precisely by the fact that their action is not aimed directly toward their own prosperity. The fools in this text only act to bless themselves, but wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom is motivated by more noble aspirations. It's about the sincere desire to bless other people. Now, when we're looking at this portrait of wise motivations, more than the other two portraits that we've looked at before, there is absolutely no guarantee of a safe outcome in this life when you choose to put other people first. 
when you spend your life blessing other people, there is no guarantee of a safe outcome for you in this world. In a sinful, selfish, dog-eat-dog world, when you put others first, others are most likely going to agree with you and say, yep, I'm first and you're last. Get to the back of the line. That's exactly right. Just look at that poor, wise man who saved the city. No one remembered him. None of us want that fate. But this wise man points to the greatest advantage of wisdom. When we center other people in our words, in our choices, in our motivation, there might not be any earthly rewards for us, but there is a heavenly, eternal, eschatological reward from God. This poor, wise man points us to another who perfectly embodied wise motivations and received a reward from God. Look closer at this poor, wise man. And who do you see? You see someone who spent his life to deliver others, even though he was despised and rejected by men. You see someone who was rich beyond all measure, but who, for love's sake, became poor. You see someone who was God, but stooped low enough so that he could raise sinners into life and righteousness. That's right. Who do you see in this passage? You see Jesus. Jesus is the portrait of wise motivations, living his life to bless others. He was the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might live to righteousness and die to sin. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, 24. Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the servant of all who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Every action Jesus made came from a wise motivation, a commitment to bless other people even at the cost to himself. And when we spend time with Christ, we become like Christ. And we, be, we come to care about the things that Christ cares about. Other people. God has an eternal, heavenly reward for such motivation. Here, Philippians 2, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus went lower than anyone else could go, and he received the highest reward imaginable. So choose wisdom. Even if the culture rewards selfishness, God rewards wisdom. Again, wisdom is hard, and so we need help. How can we choose to put others first in our words, in our choices, in our motivations? First, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Jesus put you first. And therefore, you have the strength and the the power to then put other people first. Remember Jesus. And then remember where we're going. During Advent, we affirm with longing that Jesus will come again. 
Bringing the new heavens and the new earth with him. And there, in the new heavens and the new earth, all words will be wise. All choices will be good. All motivations will be pure. And all actions will receive the just and right outcome. There, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will dwell with God. And God will give us heavenly rewards that make earthly riches look like nothing. And so for the strength to choose wisdom, to place other people first, look to Jesus and look to his benefits. He is the portrait of wisdom, wise words, wise choices, and wise motivations. And he has equipped you with everything good that you could follow him. Forgiveness, redemption, and the Holy Spirit now, and eternal rewards to follow. Let that hope transform your words your choices, and your motivations even now. So brothers and sisters, choose wisdom. It's worth it in the end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. And again, we confess our sins. We confess our great need for transformed hearts, transformed lives. And we thank you that Christ supplies everything we need for that transformation. Give us wisdom and enable us to go about our lives speaking words of truth and wisdom, making choices that put other people first out of a motivation to bless others. Give us the heart and mind of Christ, we pray now in his name. Amen.